The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here. All right, we're continuing our study of this fourth gospel. We're looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Yeshua. And all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us an account of the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, which gives us multiple evidences of the reality. The resurrection is important. That's why every one of them stress it. In the first message preached in the church after Pentecost, Peter preached the resurrection. We see this in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So he is telling him, listen, you know what Yeshua did. You heard about the the signs he did, the, the people he healed, the people he raised from the dead. He says that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. They were aware of this. This Yeshua, the one who did all these miracles, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was all part of the plan of God. But he says, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. But, he says, God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now later in the same sermon, Peter says, this Yeshua God raised up. Of that we are all witnesses. So Peter is saying, we all saw him. He's alive. And the remarkable thing here is that not one voice is lifted in protest from that crowd. I mean, to me, this is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Yeshua. It's right here. This man could stand up in the city where these events had taken place little more than a month earlier and tell these people Yeshua had been risen from the dead and not one person challenges Him. They knew Yeshua's body was not there. They could go to the tomb. That tomb was empty. They knew that the authorities could not produce the body of Yeshua, though they would have given a king's ransom to have done so. They had heard all the wild rumors that spread through the city that Yeshua was alive and that He was appearing to His own disciples from time to time. And there is not one voice who challenges what the Apostle says here. Instead, they stand there in mute silence. Because there's no argument. We can't argue against this. You know, I, as we've been saying the last several weeks, it's, it's difficult to overestimate the importance of the resurrection. This is the main theme of Peter's sermon here. It's the main theme of nearly every sermon preached in the book of Acts. After spending one verse on each of Yeshua's life and death, he spends nine verses on the resurrection. Because it's the main theme of the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. The resurrection is absolutely critical to Christianity. It means that God was satisfied with the sacrifice for sin that Christ offered. It means that He conquered death not only for Himself, but for all who put their faith in Him. Now in our last study, we saw that Yeshua's first post-resurrection appearance was to Mary. Mary Magdalene, who I said was Lazarus' sister. She's at the empty tomb, weeping. 
and the angels, and Yeshua asked her, why are you weeping? And she was weeping because she didn't believe what the Tanakh taught. She didn't believe what Yeshua had taught her about the resurrection. So she's standing in a very empty tomb, which was a sign and a symbol of the resurrection, and she's crying. And when the Lord and Yeshua says, why are you weeping? They mean, uh, the tomb's empty, why are you weeping? This is a thing to rejoice about. It should have been cause of rejoicing. Then Yeshua calls her by name, she realizes it's Him, and she goes from depression to excitement in just a couple seconds. Yeshua tells her to go and tell the other disciples that He is ascending to the Father, and that's kind of where we ended last week, with verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He has said these things to her. So Mary goes to the other disciples where they're gathered, And she said, I've seen the Lord, and He told me to tell you He's going to send to the Father. Now, John doesn't give us all the details here, so let's go to Luke and fill in some more of these details from Luke's account of these post-resurrection appearances. Now, Luke tells us that the women go to the tomb early, they find it empty, the stones rolled away, the grave clothes are lying there. He also tells us there's two angels sitting there who tell them, He's not here, He's risen. And then in verse 9 of chapter 24, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. All the rest. Now I want you to see here that there's more than just the apostles. That's the, des- the eleven, that's the designation for the apostles. And to all the rest. So there's more people there than just the twelve, and that's important for us to understand, or technically the eleven at this point. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them like an idle tale. You women are crazy. What is wrong with you? Why, you know, I mean, the Lord told us over and over He's going to rise from the dead. The tomb's empty. You're saying He's risen. That's ridiculous. And they did not believe it. Listen, they know these women. These women were fellow disciples. They had traveled with the Lord. But it says they, they hear the testimony from these women. They said, it just seemed like an idle tale and they didn't believe it. A little later in the day, two disciples of Yeshua are on their way to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're walking along. They're talking to each other. They're just you know kind of mourning over all the things that have happened. And it says uh, Yeshua Himself drew near and went with them. And so they're talking to the risen Christ, but they don't know it. They're brokenhearted over Yeshua's death. And then Yeshua says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? So He says, He calls them slow of heart to believe everything the prophets had spoken. He's basically saying to them, don't you guys believe the Scriptures? The Scriptures you study, the Scriptures that Yeshua taught, you don't believe them? Because they taught this. Then after teaching them what the Scriptures say, the Bible says He opened their eyes and they realized they were talking to the risen Christ. Well, Luke goes on to say, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them. Again, we've got more than just the apostles here. Gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of bread. So how do they respond to another eyewitness account? 
even after being told by five different people who they knew that they had seen the risen Christ, they still didn't believe it. They still were like, no, that just that can't be the case. Then the Lord shows up. As they were talking about these things, Yeshua Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Even after being told by five different people that He's alive, when He shows up, they're terrified and they think He's a spirit. Listen, obviously, none of these disciples understood Yeshua's repeated disclosures that He was going to be killed in Jerusalem and raised on the third day. And I think one of the reasons they didn't get this, although it was taught in the Scripture, they pictured a conquering and reigning Messiah who would defeat Rome and lead Jerusalem into victory. They didn't have a concept of a suffering, dying Messiah. So despite the teaching of the Tanakh, despite all that Yeshua Himself had taught them that Messiah would rise from the dead, they just didn't get it. Had the truth. Heard the truth, but didn't get it. The Feast of Yahweh taught that Messiah would die on Passover. Be raised three days later on the Feast of Firstfruits. So these disciples watched Him die on Passover as the Passover lambs are being slain. And they should have kind of put this together. Well, He's saying He's the Messiah. He's dying on first. He's dying on Passover. And then on Firstfruits, the tomb was empty. And it should have been to them, well, he's supposed to raise on first fruits. That's resurrection. Yay! And they got excited about it. An eyewitness comes and tells them they'd seen the risen Lord, and they still don't believe it. And as we look at our text in John, we see them in fear, locked up behind closed doors. John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Yeshua came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So he tells us it's Sunday afternoon. The evening is toward the close of the day. The time is probably around 3 o'clock, the third hour of the day of prayer, time of prayer. So the first appearance of Yeshua to the disciples took place on the evening of the same day that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, the first day of the week. Later that day, he appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and now he's showing up to the rest of the disciples. This is the day, this is the feast of first fruits. It's Sunday. Now, we're not commanded to work, I mean to worship on Sunday. The first generation believers actually continued to meet on the Sabbath. They met in the local synagogues and they met on Sabbath, so they met there with them. They met in the temple for the set feast days. And it wasn't until later that they began to, I mean, they, I think they began to meet on Sundays, but they also met with them. However, later on, the rabbis instituted what was called a curse oath that required synagogue members to reject Yeshua as the Messiah after AD 70. And if they wouldn't do that, they were put out of the synagogue. So at this point, they just kind of moved and began to worship on Sunday, the resurrection day, to commemorate Yeshua's resurrection. As I said, we're not commanded to worship on Sunday. We can worship any day. We should worship every day. We gather on Sunday. That's what we do. That's because the church did that. Yeshua appeared on Sundays for several times to them, and they just took off, and the church worships on Sunday. Now, the text doesn't tell us where they're meeting. But my guess would be they're back in the upper room. 
They're back in the last place where they met with Yeshua. They spent that wonderful evening of fellowship with the Lord. Maybe they're there just you know, going over all the things He taught them and their just hearts are grieved over their loss. The text doesn't tell us who's all there, but Luke tells us, as we saw, it's more than the eleven. There's other disciples there. Now, it says, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. What are they afraid of? Well, <laughs> they must have been afraid that the Jewish leaders are going to come after them next. Okay? Uh, they really didn't have much to, the Jews didn't have much to fear from these disciples, obviously, because they were, had taken off as soon as he was arrested. You know, I think that the, the text tells us they're afraid of the Jews, but I think they also must have had some fear of the Roman soldiers. And they, would, they should have been afraid of Rome because Rome had just crucified their leader for sedition, which, as his followers, would have made them complicit. And now, the story is circulating that they had stolen the body. We see that in Matthew, Matthew 28. It says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the story's being circulated. Hey, his disciples stole them. And remember, Rome had sealed that tomb with the Roman seal and breaking that would have been punishable by death. So they just, you know, hey, Rome thinks we stole them. They were hiding. They're fearful. They're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of the Romans. They're just cowardly. They're afraid they're going to be hunted down. And so, so Yeshua came and stood among them. So here they are. They're in this upper room. They're in fear. And all of a sudden, there's the Lord, who they don't believe, has risen from the dead standing there. He enters the room. Now, even though the doors are locked, now, let me ask you this. Was Yeshua's resurrected body different than the body that went in the tomb? Was it a glorified spiritual body? Many say that it was. Okay, this is, not, this is a special body. It's a glorified body. I want to propose to you that the body that came out of the tomb was the same body that went in the tomb. Okay? Now, if you know your Bible, you may be saying, well, Mark says it was a different body after the resurrection. Well, let's look at Mark. Mark 16, 11 and 12 says, but When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. These are the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears in a different form, it says. Now, because of verses like this, many believe that Yeshua's resurrected body was different. But notice what Mark writes earlier at the Transfiguration in Mark 9, 2. After six days, Yeshua took with him Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured here comes from the Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It means to be changed into something else. The Greek word here is a compound word from morphe, meaning form, and meta, which implies change. So very simply, therefore, the underlying meaning of this word has to do with to be changed into a different form. So at the transfiguration, Yeshua appeared to them in another form. And remember, this is before the resurrection. So he's in another form here, and Mark says later, he appeared to them in another form. 
Now you might be thinking, well, Yeshua walked through walls after the resurrection. Did he? Where does it say that? It says Yeshua came and stood in the midst. I mean, many use this text to say he walked right through the walls. That'd be cool to see that, you know, you know the wall and all of a sudden phew, he's on this side. You know, but it doesn't say that. That would have been kind of shocking to them. But notice the text does not say he walked through walls. It simply says Yeshua came and stood among them. Now, does that imply a different body? Well, how do you get in that room? Well, look at this text in Luke 4.28. When they had heard these things, and all the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, let me ask you here. Anybody know the context here? What are they mad about? He's in the synagogue, he's teaching, and all of a sudden everybody's mad at him. Why? No, that will not here. Okay, here's the context. He said there was a lot of widows. There was a lot of lepers. But the Lord chose Gentiles to appear to. And boy, they lost their minds. Okay? Gentiles, what? And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. How did he do that? This is, this is before. He said, oh, pardon me, excuse me, excuse me. Oh, wait a minute, we're trying to throw you over. You can't go that way, go this way. No, he just passed through their midst, he's gone. The crowd wanted him over the cliff. How did he do that? See, he did things like this before the resurrection. So that's why I'm thinking this body is the same body that went into the grave. Now notice what Luke writes of Yeshua after his resurrection. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So obviously... He's saying, you know, touch me. There's, there's scars here that can be seen. And he says, he's flesh and bone. He said, I'm not a spirit. So he's still flesh and bones. Luke goes on and says, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Look, it's still scars. While they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling and said to them, have you anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish And he took it and ate it before them. So here's Yeshua eating fish. Do glorified bodies get hungry? (laughs) Do they they have a digestive process? This sounds to me like a a, a regular body. Okay? Now, if you want to argue against this being a regular body, there is a text in the Tanakh you could use. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> Anybody know offhand? <laughs> All right, good. I'll let it go. <laughs> then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Here again, we see that Yeshua had the same nail holes in his hands and feet and the same spear hole in his side that he had before this resurrection. Now, haven't we all heard that our glorified bodies are going to be perfect? Yeshua's wasn't. So is it really a glorified body? It's the same body. It's got nail holes in it. We could say that Yeshua's physical body resurrection looked a lot like Lazarus' resurrection. The body that went in came out. 
Still got scars? Or were they? I don't know if they were scars. Maybe they're just fresh wounds. Were they healed? Doesn't really tell us, you know? But somehow, I think he wants them to see this is not, I'm not a spirit. I'm not a phantom. This is real me. Came out of the grave. I'm alive. So Yeshua appears in their midst and he says, Peace be with you. Now, that's a good thing to say when you just people think you're dead and you show up in the midst of them, okay? <laughs> that would be a little bit, of, little bit startling, startling, all right? But peace be with you is a common greeting in Hebrew. In Hebrew, you would say, Shalom Alechem. Peace be upon you. The phrase spoken here by the resurrected Yeshua to the disciples must surely have been intended to reassure them and to calm them. Shalom Alechem. Peace be upon you. Can you imagine how startling it would be? You're all thinking he's dead. You just don't believe the Scripture. Someone said he's alive, but you don't believe him, and all of a sudden, there he is. So Yeshua is imparting peace rather than just wishing peace on them. And I think this is similar to what Paul says of believers in Romans 5.1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. He's saying, listen, there's no more... We're no longer at war with God. God is no longer angry with us because of Christ's death, because of His sacrifice. We have peace with God now. We are at peace with God. There is peace. And that's what He's saying here. Peace be with you. Now, how many of you ever have heard these words, peace be with you, at a Catholic church? I mean, the priest says this all the time. All right, The Catholic church says, these are the very words, peace be with you, the priest uses as he stands in persona Christa, in other words, in the person of Christ, as he greets the congregation. So when the priest says this, he's, he's in the person of Christ. I don't know how that happens. I don't buy that, okay? I've had many arguments with Catholic priests, and I don't believe that, you know, some of the things they say, you know, especially what happens in the confession, oh, we don't remember that. I'm like, you guys, come on. You don't remember what they said. <clears throat> so, you know, this is just, I mean, they, they would use these verses here. That's where they get that saying from. And they're, so they're acting as the person of Christ. All right? Listen, believers, the Catholic Church can't give peace with God. Only faith in Christ can do that. And they actually hinder faith in Christ because they say it's good, but it's not enough. You've got to add to that. All right? But when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now to show them his wounds kind of dispels any impression that they're seeing a ghost, that they're seeing a phantom, an imposter. They are truly seeing the risen body of Yeshua. Now the question I got here is, are these scars or are they wounds? I mean, he's only been in the tomb three days. I think these are, in my mind, these would be fresh wounds. I mean, if they're all healed up, the guys would wonder, how'd you heal so fast, you know? I mean, it just... I don't know. I don't know. I guess we won't know. But, you know, he just got off the crucifixion, you know, I can, I can imagine. To me, it would have more of an impact if these are fresh wounds, okay? They're not healed. They're fresh wounds. They just happened three days ago, by the way, all right? He says he showed them his hands. Now, both the Greek and the Hebrew word for hands include the wrist as part of the hand. Now, that's important, I think. Because you can't put a nail here in the hand because it would just rip right through. But they put the nail here, and then your bones hold it. And there's nerves there that really 
are aggravated by that. Okay, well, we're going to talk about that in a minute here. But it says, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is the fulfillment of Yeshua's words to the disciples when He was with them in the upper room in the last discourse. In 1622, He says, You also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He says, I'm going to see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Now, the word rejoice here and the word glad in our verse are the same Greek word. It's Cairo, and it means to be cheerful, to be happy, to be glad, to have joy. They were glad because they saw the Lord. Now, the word saw here is from the Greek word horao, and it's the same word that we saw used in verse 8 where it says that Lazarus saw and believed. And it means to discern clearly. It's a Hebraism for experience. So now they see, that the, and the rest of the disciples basically, I think, are coming to believe here. That's what he said. They saw, in other words, now they get it. They see the Lord. They're glad because, oh my word, we're finally catching on. He said he was going to rise from the dead. He did. And then he says to them again, peace be with you. He uses this greeting again. Uh, I think he's just trying to reassure them here. Now think about what happened here. These guys, when the Lord got arrested, they took off like scared little girls. At the crucifixion, they weren't there. They were hiding. At the burial, they weren't there. Didn't want any, didn't want any association. Afterwards, they're hiding in the upper room. So here's the Lord, and He says to them, you bunch of lousy scoundrels, why can't you believe anything I tell you, I did that somehow. <laughs> yeah. Why can't you believe anything I tell you? You know, no, that's not what he did at all. He doesn't rebuke them. He is not harsh to them. He says, peace be with you. Shalom Aleichem. You know, that's reassuring when you're in their position. You know, because they must, like I said, they must have felt kind of bad. I mean, wow, we haven't been very faithful to you, but peace be to you. That's, that's our loving Lord. He says, uh, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now the words for sent here and sending are two different words in the Greek language. And that's important. The first word sent is from the Greek word apostello, from which we get our word apostle. It refers to one who is sent in, as an authoritative representative. All right? So Yeshua was sent. This is a word that's used in both instances in John 17, 18, where he says, as you sent me into these talks, praying to the Father, as you sent me into the world, I sent them. This is a, a, a delegation. I'm sending these men out as apostles. In our text, apostello is a reference to our Lord being the solitary representative of the Godhead to humanity. God sent the Son. As the Father has sent me, I'm the Apostle. I've come from God as an official representative. The second word here, though, is pempo. I'm sending you. Pempo indicates being sent to participate in the work of another. So Christ came to redeem man. They're coming to tell people about the redemption of man. The Father had sent the Son into the world, and He sent Him with a mission. John 3.17 indicates that God sent the Son into the world in order that the world might be saved. Yeshua sends the disciples into the world for the same purpose. 
Though the salvation of the world will be accomplished by the proclamation of the saving work of Christ, not by the work of the disciples. In other words, they're not doing the same thing. They're just telling about what Christ has done. He is setting them apart for the work He has called them to do. They are, in a sense, being commissioned. Now, I don't think there's anything in this context that suggests that we should limit the words here to the twelve, to the apostles. We know there's others there. There are others are being sent. The apostles are they're the official sent ones. Okay, they're the apostles, but they're sending the others. And believers, I believe that all believers, which includes us, are called to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. This is what he's telling them. You go out and tell people what I've done. I think that responsibility falls on us too. All right? Talk about that more here. I don't think this is solely a call to share the gospel, though. That's part of it. That's the Lord came to be a, a sin offering. But as we've seen over and over the gospel, that's not all he came to do. One of the main things the Lord came to do was to reveal the Father. All right? John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made them him known. So when you know you show over and over said, You see me, you see the Father, look at me, watch how I act, watch what I say, watch what I do. You're seeing the Father. All he did, he says, was to reveal the Father. We see this in John 14, 9. Yeshua said to him, Have I been so long with you and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's pretty strong language, people. How can you say, Show us the Father? Now, the emphasis of John 14. Basically, 7-11 through 11 is pretty clear. Six times Yeshua says virtually the same thing, that He and the Father are so profoundly one that to see Him is to see the Father. Verse 7a, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father, because He came to reveal Him. 7b, From now on you do not know Him and have seen Him. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him, because you saw Christ. 9a, Philip asked to see the Father, and Yeshua says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? 9b says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 10a, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? 11a, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now, who's the Lord talking to here? This is addressed to the eleven and the rest, because we've seen they're, they're together, right? So he's talking to his first century disciples, right? Would you agree with that? Does it apply to us? You know, audience relevance, we've got to figure out who's he talking to. He's talking to them. And so a lot of people say, well, he's talking to them, he's not talking to us. So do you think that he wants us to share the gospel? Are we sent to proclaim, are we sent to reveal the Father? Yes, I believe we are. And I know some preterists will disagree with all oh, the context here. This is t- he's talking to them. I think people, it applies to us. You can deny it all you want, but listen, we are called to be image bearers of God, which means that people are to see the Father when they look at us. And I think this is the most fundamental reality of human existence. We are made by God in His own image to be His representatives in the world He created. We're image bearers. And the image is not an ability we have, it's a status. God 
intends for us, you and I, to be His representatives. So practically, what does that look like? Well, as Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty, listen, to imitate God. Okay? Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So how are you doing with that? No, no pressure at all. Just imitate God. Just be like God. Just talk like God. Just act like God. Just treat people like God. That's all he's asking for. It's simple, right? People, this is what we are called to do. He came to seek and save the lost. And now you and I are responsible to share that good news with people. And here's, I think, with this. Be imitators of God. If God is compassionate... We as His image bearers are to be compassionate. If God is loving, we as His image bearers are to be loving. If He's kind, we're to be kind. We're to display Him. Listen, listen. We are to display God in everything we say and in everything we do. That's our calling. We are sent to bear His image. That is a heavy responsibility, people. But a people, if we, you know, he didn't ask us to do this if he wouldn't have given us the ability to do it. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, we use the Spirit's power, this can be accomplished. But too often, we're just too self centered, too preoccupied with our own life, our own desires, our own wants, that we're like, I don't care what they think, I'm mad at them. We are called to be image bearers. And I think if the church ever gets to understand this and start to live like Christ lived, we'll have an impact on the world in which we live. Because right now, the biggest thing the world thinks of the church is they're a bunch of hypocrites. You know, you ever invite people to church, I don't know, there's too many hypocrites. You know what I tell them? Here's what I tell them. we got room for one more. <laughs> right? You're right. I don't disagree with them. There's a bunch of hypocrites there, but we got room for one more. Come on. Join us. We are called to bear His image. He says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Christ was sent to seek and save the lost. We are called to represent that Gospel, to share that Gospel, and to be image bearers. Okay, let's move on. You had enough? Verse 22, And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a controversial verse here, All right. There's a lot of argumentation going on here. What is happening here? Is Yeshua giving them the Holy Spirit here? It sounds like that, doesn't it? I mean, you just read this, it sounds like, here you go, here's the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem with that. Here's what Yeshua said earlier. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Well, He hasn't gone away because He's there with them. Okay? So how can this work out? He didn't send the Spirit until after the ascension, he says here. In other words, the Holy Spirit's not coming till Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit is prophesied in the Tanakh as taking place on the Feast of Pentecost. That's 50 days away. So why is he saying receive the Spirit? Well, yeah, the the arguments here go on and on. But I'm going to give you, um, this is from a theology of the New Testament, George Ladd. He summarizes it. It's a very simplified 
some, but, but it's, it's helpful just to see there's some different views. He says, this passage raises difficulties in light of the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, which may be solved in one of three ways. There's, believe me, there's a lot more views than three. <clears throat> Either John did not know about Pentecost, and he substitutes this story so that it becomes, in effect, Johannian Pentecost. Now, this is me in the quotations here. This is the most frequently espoused view today. This is how most people take this verse. Most theologians say, well, this is John's Pentecost. Like, he didn't know any better. This is his Pentecost. Breathe on him, and that's, you know. Okay, that's one view. <clears throat> he says there were actually two gifts. Some say, well, they got the Spirit here, you know, in some form, and then they got it later at Pentecost. All right? Or, he says, Jesus breathing on the disciples was an acted parable, promissory and anticipatory of the actual coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Alright, to me, this third view makes the most sense in light of the context. Notice what Yeshua tells the disciples later. In Acts chapter 1, He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. After Pentecost, these men were changed men. But the subsequent behavior of the disciples after this text in John hardly suggests indwelling of the Spirit. You drop down to verse 26, and where are they? They're in the upper room again the next Sunday, still hiding, still got the doors locked. So where's the power? John doesn't report anything out of the ordinary happening here as a result of the Lord's actions. The disciples are not transformed like they will be at Pentecost. The Gospel's not preached. In fact, the next thing that happens in John's Gospel is they go fishing. <laughs> they go fishing. It's like, look, we're done with this. Let's go fishing, guys. Let's go back to what we know. You know? It seems to me, therefore, that these verses are not about the spirits and dwelling of believers. I believe Yeshua is symbolically bestowing the Spirit upon His disciples, although it's not going to actually happen until Pentecost. He's saying, you guys are going to receive the Spirit. Now, the text does not say He breathed on them. On them is not in the text. It simply says, He breathed, or perhaps He exhaled. The verse should be translated, and with that, He exhaled. He breathed, and He said, receive the Spirit. So I don't think he's giving them the Spirit. I don't think he's imparting the Spirit here. It just doesn't fit in the context. It doesn't fit with what we know of the power of the Spirit at what we see at Pentecost. Now, verse 23 says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Do we, or did they, have the power to forgive people's sins? Huh? You think they did? There's no instance in the Bible of the apostles forgiving anybody's sins. The Roman Catholic Church, again, uses this verse to support their teaching that ordained priests have the authority to forgive or retain sins of people contingent on private confession and penance. They go to the little booth, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. You know, I blah, 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 and they tell what the sin is. They, they tell the they don't give them really the details. They give them a, you know, I lied. You know, that's probably when they did much worse. And then he'll say, okay, your penance is, say, three Hail Marys and four Our Fathers, and you're good to go. Really? <clears throat> and I remember athling, you know, arguing with a priest over this. 
I'm saying, you, you know, you go in that room and you think you're in God's place. We don't read the spirit comes upon me. Says we don't remember. I'm like, you're a liar. I called him a liar. I told him because I thought he was lying. You liar. So you go back to your buddies in the rectory while you're eating lobster and drinking wine and you tell jokes about, you know, well, this guy did this, this. You know, I said, come on, man. This is when I first became a Christian, man. I was wild and crazy, all right? And I, you know, because Kathy's parents wanted us to get married in a Catholic church. They're all Catholic. And so he's at least go talk to the priest. And after talking to him, I'm like, we're never getting married. You know, he said to me that Christ, more than anything else, was in that rectory. He had him locked up in the host. And I'm like, yeah, the world's dying and going to hell, and you got them locked up in the, your church. Real good, guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's right. Listen, I'd been only a Christian for six months, but I'd read enough of the Bible to know that, you know, doesn't the Bible say call no man father? And they're like, you know. So, anyway. The Catholic Church is teach, the Catholic Church teaches it's necessary to bring those venial sins, venial sins are unintentional sins, before the Lord, and a penitential rite of Mass in order to receive forgiveness. And any mortal sins must be confessed to an ordained priest who is a successor of the first ministerial priesthood of Christ to whom we confess as though we are confessing to Christ Himself. So if you want forgiveness, you got to go to Him. And, you know, and what does the Bible say about there's no mediator between man and God? We go to God. you got an issue, you go to God, because you don't need to go to men. You don't need to do that. The text does not justify some priestly hierarchy who hears confession. See, people will read this verse and they'll say, see, this is where we get our authority from. No, you don't understand it. Some man can't hear your confession and grant absolution. There is no example in the Bible of the apostles forgiving or retaining anyone's sins. The New Testament is clear There's no distinction. Now listen to me clearly here, people. There is no distinction between clergy and laity. You understand what I'm saying? Huh? So what's the difference between me and you? What's the difference between me and Stan? Yes, there is a difference. I'm paid to be good. He's good for nothing. What, what I'm saying is he does good for nothing. I have to get paid for it. No, people, this is serious, though. You know, we have this idea that, okay, you know, man of the cloth or reverend, or what, that's all garbage, okay? We're all priests before God, and there's no distinction, okay? I get paid here at this church because I spend my full time studying so I can teach, okay? Something I love to do, something, but I have no more standing with God than any of you. I'm not in any different position than any of you. Okay? People say, oh, will you pray for me? Pray for yourself. I mean, yeah, I'll join you in prayer, but I don't have any in. You know, it's not like, oh, that's, that's the right reverend, Curtis. Yes. No, listen. I hate the title reverend. I despise it. Okay? You know why? Because the Bible says holy and reverend is His name. God is holy. He's reverend. Men are just men. All right? So there's this, this priest distinction is nonsense. Okay? Whether it be in a Baptist church, whether it be in a Catholic church, it doesn't matter. All right, This guy in the pulpit has no more power, no more authority than anybody. He's just another person in the church. All right? All right. <clears throat> the Scriptures are clear, I think, that only God can forgive sins. All right? When the paralytic was brought to the presence of the Lord, Yeshua said to this individual, 
Your sins are forgiven you. And the Jewish leaders went nuts. They said, only God can forgive sins. And guess what? They were right. You know, they're like a broken clock. They're right twice a day. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. But the power of proclaiming this forgiveness was entrusted to the disciples and to us. And this is consistent with the idea that the disciples are to carry on the ministry of Yeshua after He's departed from the world and returned to the Father. They carry it on. Now, the second part of each of these conditional clauses in this verse is in the passive voice and the perfect tense in the Greek. Now, the passive voice indicates that someone has already done the forgiving or the retaining. That someone is God. Okay? Since He alone has the authority to do that. The perfect tense indicates that the action has continuing effects. The sins stand forgiven or they stand retained. Believers have the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 6.19 says, if they will only use them. See, if people believe the gospel, the disciples were given the authority to tell these new believers, you've been forgiven. If they didn't believe the gospel, if they reject Christ, they could tell them, your sins are retained. Notice what Peter says in Acts 10.42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. That's what He's preaching. Listen, you receive forgiveness by believing. So if you believe in the Lord Yeshua, I can say to you, your sins are forgiven. Now when I meet someone that I don't know and they tell me they're a Christian, I like to probe to find out, what does that mean? What does it mean you're a Christian? You know, if you were to die right now, and you were standing before God in heaven, and He said to you, why should I let you in my kingdom? What would you say? And if they say, well, because I did, I'm like, eh. The only right answer is, because of Christ's sacrificial death on my behalf. That's the only reason you have any right to go into heaven. So if I talk to somebody and they tell me they're trusting Christ, I can say, your sins have been forgiven. If you reject Christ, I can tell them your sins are retained. And the terms and the conditions of this are set down in the Word of God. We're not making anything up. Scriptures tell us we are all sinners. Every one of us are born sinners, separated from God. And we need forgiveness. But the Scriptures say that Yeshua the Christ has died for us, and He has rendered an atonement to God that is sufficient for our sins. Every one of our sins, past, present, and future. And the Scriptures say that if you'll stop trusting in anything but Christ, you'll be saved. And here's the thing, people. People are trusting in so much today. In churchianity. Okay? Some people trust in their church. Well, I go to that church, so I know I'm saved. I go to the Catholic church. You know, if you go to a Catholic funeral, you know how they will tell you that, no, that person is in heaven? Baptism. We know this man is in heaven because he's been baptized. And I'm like, what? You got him wet so he gets to go to heaven. No, that's trusting something besides Christ. You can't trust your good works. You can't trust your education, your culture, or whatever ritual or rite you do. The only thing we can trust is in the finished work of Christ. He paid it all. We don't add anything to that. We can't add anything to it. But that's what the Catholic Church teaches. What he did was not enough, and you have to add to that. People, it's all about trusting Christ. And when someone trusts Christ, we have the authority to tell them, your sins are forgiven. That's what the gospel's all about. 
Now, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Listen, we've gone over this verse so many times. Here's what Yeshua is telling them. Unless you believe that I am. There's no he in this text. The I am here, he is saying he's God. I am, the Tetragrammaton. All right, this is the sacred name of God. Unless you believe that I am God, unless you believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. It's pretty pointed there, people. But that's what this whole gospel's been about, trying to show us who Yeshua is, that He is Yahweh. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Yeshua came. Oh, boy, it's so funny to hear all the people getting on Thomas for skipping church. <laughs> they were together, and Thomas wasn't there, and they go into all these stories about why Thomas wasn't there, and I'm like, I wonder how they knew that, okay? You know, John is the only writer who records this post-resurrection appearance that Thomas wasn't there, okay? Thomas' confession is John's climactic argument for belief in Yeshua as the divine Messiah, the Christ. He says this is kind of like the final thing, you know, Thomas here. Now, but the sad thing is, what do you think of when you hear the name Thomas? Yeah, we think of doubting Thomas, right? You know, that's not really fair. First of all, John's previous picture of the disciple presents him as a loyal and courageous follower of Yeshua. He says, let's go with him, we'll die with you. Now let's remember, the other disciples didn't believe until the Lord showed up and they saw him. Right? (laughs) Same thing, Thomas is demanding nothing more than they already saw. But we all get on Thomas, oh Thomas, you know, why don't you believe? You guys didn't either, you know? What's the deal here? Tradition has him preaching as far east as India, where they say he died there in India. He was uh, shot through with four spears by four soldiers. And so they're saying Thomas was faithful. He carried the gospel to the ends of the earth as he was called to do. But yes, we, that thing kind of stuck, this doubting Thomas thing. And so, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Oh, they're all, they're all about it now because they saw him, right? But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, the place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So he's like, I'm just like you guys were, because you didn't believe until you saw him either. Now the, the Greek text here clarifies that the other disciples kept saying, we have seen the Lord. Yeshua's alive. But in spite of this, he's like, no man, I, I didn't see him. I'm not believing it just like the rest of them had. Unless I see his hands, he goes on. So this is the only place in the New Testament where we learn that the nails pierced his hands and feet. This is it. Now here's what's interesting. The NIV Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible says this on this verse. Romans most often tied persons to the cross with rope. So most often, they didn't nail them. They tied them up there. But sometimes, nailed them as a sadistic, but more often death-hastening variation of the execution. Unless the person were also tied to the cross, a person, a person not be, what? A person could not be simply nailed to it through the palm of his hands as they would not support his weight. Now that's what we talked about. It just pull up. The hand would simply tear open. The Greek term translated hands does not allow for the nails, or does allow for the nails to be in the forearm. So they're just saying the same thing. Often they were tied 
you know, but it was significant that he was nailed to the cross. All right? Now, it wasn't just that Thomas disbelieved the resurrection. You got to understand this. He doubted, he disbelieved everything that Yeshua had said. Everything Yeshua claimed, he doubted. In his mind, death had invalidated all that Yeshua taught about himself. I mean, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he's dead. He viewed him as a liar and a fraud. I mean, death proved him a blasphemer. Just a man claiming for himself the power and authority to honor God? He's to be honored the same as God, now he's dead? See, only a resurrection could turn this around for Thomas. That's the only thing that could happen now. I mean, if he's God, he's got to come back from the dead. But let me say this, before you're too hard on Thomas, have you ever doubted the Word of God? <laughs> I mean, we all know the Scriptures, right? That's why we read the Bible over and over. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to... We know that, right? But have you ever questioned that? God, this doesn't seem good. God, I don't like this. This doesn't seem right. We all fall into doubt at times. And that, that's what's encouraging about this text. Thomas is doubting. He's just being adamant about this. And Yeshua deals with him so kindly and so tenderly. Again, he doesn't blast him. He just says, Thomas, look. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Yeshua came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Eight days later, evidently they included both Sundays. Uh, I think he, he's just trying to say it's Sunday again. And the disciples are together, doors locked again. Now this setting is identical with the previous incident a week earlier. All right, This is the same as verse 19. Lazarus makes a point of repeating the same statement about the doors being locked. He comes and stands in the midst. He says, peace be to you. The only difference here, Thomas is present. So in other words, it's the exact same thing now, but now Thomas is there like the rest of them were the last time. The doors are locked. Yeshua came and stood among them. People, they're still hiding. So this is again one of my arguments of they didn't receive the Spirit because they're still hiding. They still feared, feared the Jewish authorities. Doesn't like they... Doesn't look like they received a whole lot of power here. All right. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hand. Put out your hand and place it in my side. That kind of gives you the idea of an open wound. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So obviously, you get from this that Yeshua knew what Thomas had said, although he wasn't there because he's God. This is a further implication of his deity. Now, we don't know whether Thomas actually touched him or not. It doesn't tell us. He doesn't, he does just say, doesn't say that at all. You know, did the others touch him? We don't, he, they had the opportunity to. He tells him, don't disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas professes to believe in what the resurrection proved. That Yeshua was God. That He was Lord. The literal translation here, the Lord of me and the God of me. Thomas' profession of faith, this is one of the strongest statements affirming the deity of Christ in Scripture. He calls Him God. Think about this. Who is Thomas? What's his nationality? 
He's a Jew, right? He's a Jew. For a Jew to call another human being my Lord and my God, that would be blasphemy under normal circumstances. Yet that's precisely who Thomas believed Yeshua was. It's also who John presented Yeshua as being throughout this Gospel. Both these titles are used in the Tanakh of the deity of Christ. John 1.1 1, 1. You remember back that far? Had declared that the Word not only was with God, but was God. And as we come near the end of the Gospel, we find the same affirmation of the deity of Christ appears in Thomas' says, My Lord and My God. And so basically we've come full circle. The Gospel started the first verse. He ends here with saying, My Lord and My God. Lazarus has introduced the reader to who Yeshua was. And now Thomas is confessing that. The last disciple, he has come to the full realization of who he was and what Yeshua had predicted in 828 has come to pass. He says, so Yeshua said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's crucifixion, then you will know that I am. Again, there's no He there. It's just I am. You'll know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. Being lifted up in crucifixion led to the death, the resurrection, the exaltation with the Father. So Yeshua has revealed His true identity as both Lord, that's used in the Septuagint to translate the word Yahweh, and God, that's used in the Septuagint to translate Elohim. So Thomas' confession is the climactic exemplification of what it means to honor the Son as we honor the Father. He's calling Him God. Thomas' reaction is precisely the reaction that Lazarus wants from all those who read this Gospel. That we would believe that Yeshua is Yahweh. Yeshua said to him, you don't need to do that, Thomas. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and those who keep the Word of God. Worship God. Don't, Don't worship me. No, Yeshua didn't say that. Because He was God. Now, if he wasn't God to accept worship from Thomas and Thomas calling him God, that'd be wrong. And we see that from the angels. The angels say, hey, don't worship me. I'm Get up, get up. No, he accepts the worship because he was God. He says, have you believed because you have seen? Now, this can be translated as a question. Are you, are you believing just because you saw? Or it can be a statement. You believe because you saw. Either way, it's affirming the reality of Thomas's faith. He believed. He saw this. He has come to believe. And then he says this, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Who's that? Us. That's right. People, we're blessed. Because we haven't seen Christ. He's speaking of a time when He's not going to be around to show people His body because He's going to ascend to the Father. This is us, people. We're blessed. We've never seen the risen Christ. But we believe. (laughs) I'll I'll never forget the story John MacArthur tells. Uh, A preacher he knew was telling him that, you know, he says, when I'm shaving in the morning, the Lord appears to me and, you know, tells me these things. And MacArthur's response was, and you keep shaving? (laughs) That's not a biblical response. What happens when God shows up? People fall on their face before God, you know? No, we haven't seen the resurrected Christ. We believe because of the testimony of the Word of God. And this is the same thing Peter talked about in his first epistle. 
1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Believers, we're blessed. We cannot share Thomas' experience of sight. We cannot share his experience of touching. But we read of Yeshua's words and works through the Word of God. We come to share Thomas' faith. For us, faith comes not by sight, but from hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 10.17. Faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. That's the Word of God, people. So you know what this is? It's another reason to spend time in the Word of God. It's going to increase your faith. As you get used to the Word of God, as you understand what it's teaching, as you see how the Lord deals with people, as you see how He tells us, we grow. We grow in our faith. We're not going to see things. We don't need to see. We have a more sure testimony. It's the written Word of God. Because you know what? When you go to the back to the Bible tomorrow, it's going to say the same thing it said today. Exactly the same. Of course, unless you read a different translation, it might alter a little, but you know what I'm saying. It's not going to change from day to day. Your experience has changed. The Word of God doesn't change. And as we spend time in it, and that's why I try to encourage you to read the Bible, that's the greatest thing you can do, to learn who your God is. Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. This is the last Assertion of personal faith recorded in this Gospel. Thomas just says, you're my God. It marks the climax of the book because it presents Christ as the risen Lord, victorious over sin and death. Now, as we said earlier, this climax stresses what was stressed in the very first verse of this Gospel, and that is, Yeshua is Yahweh. John 1.1, He's God. He's ending, wrapping this thing up, saying, Thomas confessing, Thomas has come to the realization that the whole point of this book was to teach you Yeshua is God and he gets it. That's what Lazarus wants all of us to get from this book. Now, I really planned on finishing this chapter, but mm, we're not going to do that today. Okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us, Lord. It's. It's encouraging, Lord, to watch you deal with these disciples who had no courage, had no understanding, seemed to ignore everything you taught them, and yet you're gentle with them, you're loving to them, and you just keep encouraging them. Father, that's how we want to be treated, and we know you do treat us that way. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for giving us the Word of God, Lord, that we may come to see what Thomas saw, that you are our Lord and our God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.